0: Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, So today's passage uh, is really just one of the premier passages in all the scriptures. In all the scriptures, Tim Keller says that if the Bible is like a mountain range, then this would be one of the the two or the three highest peaks. The passage we're going to read this morning. And we know that all the Bible points to Jesus, right? From Genesis to Revelation, it all points to Jesus. The Old Testament is promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, the New Testament tells the story of Jesus and his church. So all the Bible points to one person, one hero in this story, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage, Philippians 2, gives us probably the most complete, compact picture of who Jesus is. And what he did. And why he did it. It's sort of like the ministry of Jesus in Cliff Notes version. You guys remember that? Got me through college, right? The Cliff Notes version of Jesus' life and ministry. All here in this passage in Philippians 2. And so now, we're going to dissect these verses to get an up-close look at how Jesus. We're going to see how Jesus humbly serves us. And then what that says about how, how, how that we should Humbly serve others. So we're going to see in Philippians 2 how Jesus has humbly served us and how that actually frees us to humbly serve others. And so I'll give you the outline on the front end. Uh, we're going to walk through first the mind of Christ. Secondly, the humility of Christ. And lastly, the exaltation of Christ. Let's look at that first one, the mind of Christ. Begin reading with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Which says, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This was part of our sermon last last week. But he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then we begin here in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul says, hey, treat each other well. Don't, 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 don't do anything from selfish ambition, from vain ambition, or, or vain conceit. But in humility, count others as better than yourselves. Have this mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So when he says, have this mind among yourselves, uh, we ask ourselves, what mind? What is he talking about? And the answer is in verse 3 and 4, right? The kind where you do nothing from ambition or conceit, the selfish ambition. Like, the Christian posture towards others is not one of flexing like hubris, but of expressing humility, all right? Counting others is, is, is more significant than yourselves, it's the difference between like walking around in life with tunnel vision to where all you see is your own interest and versus walking around with sort of like this, this wide lens panoramic view where you see this fuller picture of what's going on around you. Especially the interest of others that God would want you to, to, to serve in humility, who God has called you to serve. And so he says, have this mind among yourselves. How, how, how do you get a mind like that? How do you get a mind like that where you're not doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit, considering others better, uh, 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 as more valuable, more significant than you? How do you have that that mind? We see the answer in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. What does it say? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. So if we're going to have the mind of Christ, Paul's saying... Where we start to find the fullness of of joy and humility and holiness and unity, we need to first start with being in Christ. If we want to have the mind of Christ, then the place we need to start to find the fullness of joy and humility and all holiness and unity, all the things that Paul's exhorting the church to in Philippians, if if we want to have that sort of mind, then we need to first start by being in Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does this mean to be in Christ Jesus? Did you know that this phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, is the most common way that a follower of Jesus is described in the Bible. The most common way that a follower of Jesus is described is as someone who is in Christ or in, in Him. Even more than the word Christian. You know how many times the word Christian shows up in the scriptures? Three times. Three times. You know how many times that phrase, in Christ, appears to describe a Christian? Over 200. Over 200. So what does this mean, to be in Christ? If we want to have the mind of Christ, Paul says, it's yours in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Is it like those, like, matryoshka, like, Russian stacking dolls where Jesus is the big one and we kind of put ourselves, like, inside of him, right? Where we're found in him like that? No. <laughs> Here's how the late theologian John Stott articulates it. Uh, his words would be better than anything I could come up with, so I'll read his. He says, To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a box or our clothes are in a closet but it means to be organically united to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. It is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of authentic followers of Jesus. He continues, he says, to be in Christ is to be radically transformed to the roots of our very being. That's what it means to be in Christ. So you want to have humility the way Christ does? You want to think the way that he does about other people? You need that radical transformation. Paul says we can be mindful of that panoramic view instead of that tunnel vision if we are in Christ Jesus. So if we want healthy relationships marked by true Christian humility, that happens primarily not through a change in just our our behavior, but in a change in our nature, in who we are, having the mind of Christ is not something that you can just muster up. I was trying to think of an analogy here and I thought it was, you know, it's kinda like when you, you tell a small, small child like they have to pee before leaving the house, right? Like you tell them to pee, like you gotta pee before we leave and they say, but, but, but I what? What do they say? But I don't have to go, right? I know this is a weird analogy, welcome to church. <laughs> best I could come up with. Uh, like, the point is, you, you can't force your kid to go if there's nothing really there, right? In the same way, in the same way, <laughs> the same way and when it comes to thinking the way that Jesus thinks, having his mind and humility, as Paul says, is something that you can only put on when Christ is there. When you're in Christ, in union with him. That's why he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. He says it's yours, in Christ Jesus. you got to be in Christ. So that's, that's the first thing that I want us to, to see about how, how we can have the mind of Christ. The, the first thing, that's number one. The second thing is that we can put on the mind of Christ, not just in our being united with Jesus, but also in following his example. Right. there's two things are not mutually exclusive. we got to be in Christ, but we also have to make efforts to follow Christ, to walk in His ways, to follow His example. Now, the rest of our passage is about the example of humility and service that we have in Jesus. And what we're about to read in these next several verses is just straight-up poetry. I mean, it's it's actually literally poetry, the example of humility that we see in Jesus. Most scholars agree that verses 6 through 11, the rest of our passage, were probably not Paul's original words, but an early like poem or hymn that was used for worship in the early church. And the way that they know that is the way that the sort of like the, the, the Greek rhythm and the words he uses sort of changes this at this moment. It, it, it kind of has the, the form of of a poem or a hymn. Uh, Your translation, if you have a print Bible in front of you, you might actually have it listed in in, in kind of lines, like verses, like a poem. You got to remember some biography about Paul. Like he's in prison. The Apostle Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And I guess one of the upsides to being in prison is you kind of have a lot of spare time, right? And so Paul happens to be a really smart dude, And with all this time that he has, these letters that he writes to churches from prison are really intentional. He never wastes a word. He never wastes a phrase. He's never arbitrary with the words that he uses. Also because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. What we see is that when when Paul writes his letters, they're filled with literary devices, like shadows of the Old Testament, scholarly knowledge that we see in him of multiple languages and dialects. He uses alliteration and metaphor. At times, he uses some of veiled, snarky criticism to kind of take these cheap cheap jabs to expose the silly ways that, that some of these churches are living. And here, when Paul wants to talk about... The supreme example of deep humility and deep service that we have in the Lord Jesus, a humility that's worth emulating, he just breaks forth in poetry. He breaks forth in song. That is his literary weapon of choice because of how beautiful. The, the what he's about to 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 write is so we're going to dive deep now in these next several verses into the theology of who Jesus is and what he has done but what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to to in these verses kind of walk alongside Jesus in his humility so that we can sort of observe from Jesus and learn from Jesus learn how to emulate his example to see how he humbly serves others so we can humbly serve others as well. And look, that's always the rule, all right? Anytime we're getting into the depths of theology like Philippians 2 is, that's always the rule that no matter how deep or thick the theological trees we're getting in, theology always has to get into real life. Real life. In the here and now. Theology is about what we do with our relationships, life in the trenches, in our homes. It's about living our everyday lives for the glory of God and the good of others. And so for Paul, there's no such thing as abstract doctrine or theology. It's always concrete. It's always in the trenches. It's both head and heart and and also hands. It's doctrine with devotion. He even says, Don't treat each other with selfish ambition or conceit. Have the mind of Christ, which is like this. And then he just goes into this mini theological treatise. And so let's get into this poem and look at the humility of Christ. That's our second point, the humility of Christ. Again, he says, Paul says, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Jesus. And this is where the poem begins. In verse 6, he says, Who, speaking of Jesus, Though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, these verses really start to show us the beauty of Christ in his humility, where he gives up his glory and comes down in order to serve us. He says Jesus was, you see that phrase in verse 6, Jesus was in the form of God. In the form of God, more faith to you in the Greek, which is Paul's way of saying Jesus is God in every sense of that word. Everything that makes God God in all his divine attributes is also true about Jesus. That's what he means by in the form of God. It's actually a stronger statement than if he just said, Jesus is God. Now, that would be true. But when he says Jesus is in the form of God, Paul's saying so much more than that. He's saying Jesus is God through and through. In every way imaginable, he is the very being of God. As the old confession of faith says, he is the same in substance and equal with God the Father. Mind-blowing. He's God in every way. Now this, this is a wild assertion for people reading this. This is a wild assertion that, that Jesus, this crucified man that caused a stir in the Greek world, in the Roman Empire, this crucified man that he's God, that's a wild assertion. But that's what makes the Christian story more beautiful and more scandalous than any other story that you've heard. And anything else, and look, look. People for centuries have been trying to really escape the truth and the weight of this beautiful doctrine. Like people, people, people say things like, like you know, Jesus, Jesus isn't God, right? Like I get that he made a mark in history. Like no one, it just any 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 any, uh, any, any theologian or, or really like any historian, uh, that's 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 worth their paycheck, can like will not like cannot deny that Jesus was a historical man that existed. What people do uh, 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 claim is that is that he wasn't God. That's that that's what, that's that, that, that's where the opinion gets split. And so people for centuries have been saying, you know, Jesus really isn't God. He was maybe just like this, 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 this prophet, this holy person, or he's a teacher, just a really good teacher or a philosopher who like founded this religion. He started off as like this revolutionary teacher of peace and love. And then as years went on, the stories just kind of got embellished and people start to, to talk like, like, like Jesus was godlike, And then eventually they start saying like, well, he is God. Right? Like like a lot, of, a lot of Christianity's critics will claim that that doctrine developed later on. Now the problem with that theory is right here in the scriptures. Not only did Jesus claim to be God, he got murdered for it. That's what got him killed. His disciples, his apostles, all of them were eventually killed for also saying that he was God. Paul here, the man writing this letter, this historic letter, Paul, the historic figure that we write about, even or we can read about even in secular sources, Paul here, he's in prison for teaching that Jesus is God in a Roman state where everyone was supposed to say Caesar is God. And here, furthermore, Paul's quoting a poem or a hymn that this church is clearly familiar with, a work of art that he knew his hearers would know. And in this poem, he just gushes about how Jesus is God. And what is the first line in this beautiful Greek poem? Read verse six again with me. It says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that word grasp, is the greek word harpagon say that harpagnon. so harpagnon is this really this aggressive this really aggressive word right it means like seizing something to see something like a robber or 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 like you, you think like a uh, like a scrooge like an ebenezer scrooge right it's this picture of a scrooge who has everything but even though he has everything He he still says, mine, this is mine. I'm not giving any of this up, right? He's mine, seizes whatever he can get and keeps whatever he has. And when we read that old Christmas carol story, like when we read that story, we kind of cringe at, 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 at Scrooge, right? But the Bible says, that's our story too. That's our nature too. If you actually turn to the first pages of the scriptures and look at our human history, you'll see that even though we were not equal with God, we counted equality with God as something that we should grasp at. That's the opposite of Jesus. Though he was actually equal with God, God in his very nature and his very being, he did not grasp at it. Mind-blowing. Like, Jesus owns it all. He's the creator. He owns it all. He reigns from a throne in the heavens, and instead of saying, mine, which he rightfully could say, instead he sees a broken world that he loves and care about cares about, a world full of rebellious sinners who are out of sync with his will and his kingdom, and he comes down, verse 7 says. What's probably the most beautiful verse in the whole book, read verse 7. Jesus says, it says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, seized, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now here's, here's what's, what's nuts about this and how different Jesus is than us. He didn't, he, he He didn't consider his godness as something to be like wielded and exploited for his own selfish advantage, like 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 we w- might do in that kind of situation. Instead, it says he emptied himself. He poured out himself. I read this. Uh, I read this analogy in this in, the, in this book by Brian Chapel. He's a, he's. A, I think he's still the, the president of Covenant Seminary, um, but it, he he tells this this story of this African missionary that he was talking to, and then this this African missionary was 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 sharing about this tribe that he was reaching, trying to share the gospel with, and in this in this tribe uh, it was like an indigenous tribe in the jungles of of Africa, uh, and and the king. In this tribe, was like for, for, for many generations, the king would always be whoever was like the biggest, strongest guy in the village. And so, if if that if King's Cross was that village, like I'd probably be the king, right? Like, <laughs> but uh, th- this 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 king. The king in this village, uh, he he wear like this large headdress and the ceremonial robes that would just flow behind him like everywhere he walked in this town. Uh, and this missionary tells a story about how it went one day with this tribe, uh, like one of the, the tribe's people falls down this, 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 this deep shaft uh, and breaks his leg at the bottom and can't, can't get out. He can't climb up the walls. He's too, he's too weak. He breaks his leg and he can't get out. And uh, no one in this tribe was, like, strong enough uh, to pull this guy out. And so they run, and they get the king. And normally the king's not supposed to do this kind of work, but they say, like, your majesty king, like, we need, we need your help, like, so-and-so. You know, he fell down the shaft, and he's broken his leg. He can't get back up. And so the king runs down to uh, this area where this man fell. And he takes off his headdress, and he, he, he takes off his ceremonial robe. And for the first time in like just the history of this tribe, um, like these these people got got a glimpse of of what their king looked like without the the headdress and without this the, the ceremonial robe and, and this king like uh, hoists himself down and he grabs the guy, puts him on his back, and grabs this rope and pulls himself out and and saves the guy. And Brian Chapel's like hearing this story from this African missionary and he's like, Man, that's just like Jesus. That's just like Jesus. That's just like Jesus when he emptied himself of his glory. It's not that, it's not that Jesus ceased to be God. Like, was, that, was that, that, that king, when he took off his crown and his headdress and his robe, did he cease to be the king? No. He didn't cease to be the king. But what he did is he, he took off all, all of the flair, all of the glory, all of the, that 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 made him king. And Brian Chappell's like, man, that's just like what Jesus has done for us. He empties himself. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of man. Paul's saying here, no one is more humble than Jesus. No one. He's the form, the essence, the very identity of God. And he took on the form, essence, identity of a servant or a slave. He was born in the likeness of men. He became human. This is the profound miracle that we celebrate every Christmas time. What theologians call the incarnation, where we get that, that word carne from, like carne sada, Right? Some of you have heard me say this before, like carne means meat, right? So like chili con carne means chili with meat, which is the only way you should have chili. And so incarnation is literally God putting on meat, taking on human flesh. Profound. Next time you have a cup of chili, or you're in the Chipotle line looking at the carnitas. You can think of the humble incarnation of Jesus and just marvel at the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You're welcome. So this taking on of human flesh makes Jesus the most humble man to ever live. God the Son is found in human form. The creator entered creation. The omnipresent eternal one, the one who was everywhere, entered into space and time. The one who is seated on a heavenly throne was born in a manger with little toes and little fingers. The omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, he takes up a vulnerable human body that has to grow and mature and gets tired and hungry. Jesus laid down his kind of all-access God card, right? If Think of his words where he said, I did not come to be served, he told his disciples, but to serve. Or think about how Jesus washed feet. What kind of God is found washing feet on his hands and knees? What kind of God is found on the dirt, on his hands and knees before his followers, washing their dirty, grimy feet? What kind of God? No God but this God. This God. No one, no one makes up a religion like this. Like, this is just insane. Like no one makes up a God who does that. But that's our God. The God who did, not, did, did Jesus did not consider equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but He He emptied himself took on the form of a human servant. He came down and lived among rebellious sinners only to be disrespected by them, denied by them, mocked and abused by them. And then those hands and feet that he was born with in the manger will get stretched out on a cross where he would suffer and die in our place for our sins where he would absorb the wrath of God on our behalf like the servant king that he is. Verse 8, Paul says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the Father's love plan for sinners, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see the point that Paul's making? He's like, Jesus is the most humble person who's ever lived. We, we we try to work our way up the ladder. He works his way down out of love. Marvel at him. Paul wants us to marvel at him when he breaks forth into poetry here. And By by the way, that phrase, even death on a cross, when when you're looking into the original language, it looks likely that that was actually added by Paul. That the original poem or hymn just said that he was obedient to the point of death. And Paul makes a point to add in, even death on a cross. And so for this church, remember, this would be read out loud. And they'd hear like the words of the song. They would know what comes next, right? Like if you hear, sweet Caroline, everyone knows what comes next, right? Everyone knows what comes next. And at this point, when Paul's writing, by becoming obedient to the point of death, he adds something. He says, even death on a cross, that would just jump off the page when that would be read to the church in Philippi. You see, this was an honor and shame society, and that means that ultimate the ultimate aim of of the culture and the society is, is is, is to show honor and to be honored. The ultimate fear is to receive shame. The cross was the ultimate epitome of shame. It was not only the most painful, but the most shameful way to die. It was, it was a tool used by those in power in Rome, and in fact, it was, it, was, it was so shameful that it was illegal to execute a fellow Roman citizen this way, regardless of his crime, because of how shameful this was. Cicero, that early Roman statesman and, and author, he, he, he describes it this way. He says, to bind—and remember, he's Roman, and he, he's talking about crucifixion. He says, to bind a Roman citizen is an outrage— now, Rachel, how why would you do that to a Roman citizen, a fellow citizen? To scourge him, to whip him is a crime. It almost amounts to parricide to put him to death. How shall one describe crucifixion? Cicero says no adequate words can be found to represent so execrable an enormity, so scandalous. But Jesus, the God man, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the one who had equality with God but did not consider it something to be grasped. Jesus was crucified. So Paul adds those words, even death on a cross. Book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross despising its shame. Notice the progression here, or rather the degression. Jesus is described as God, God who became a human. Not just a human, but a human servant slash slave, a doulos. Not just a human slave, but somebody who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This poem follows Jesus not up the ladder, but down the ladder. We're always trying to climb for greater power and privilege, but Jesus turns it upside down in the most shocking of ways. Why? Because it was the only way to save us. It was the only way for him to love us to the point of our salvation. The only one who had true glory gave it up for sinners like you and me. But in doing so, God redefines the way now that we see honor. What it means to be worthy of honor. This leads us into our third and final point where we see now the exaltation of Christ. Now things start to, to turn here at this point in verse 9. We see that Jesus went through the ring, right? He was to point, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Scandalous, shameful, unheard of. But in verse 9, we see his. Vindication. Verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, because of what Jesus did, because Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, came down in the in, in, in the form of, of a human in the likeness of men, to the point of death, even death on the cross, because of that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him because he humbled himself, he emptied himself in order to serve us. God the Father has highly exalted God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This poem is saying, look, this is what honor looks like. This is what it looks like to be worthy of honor. This is what a person worthy of honor looks like. Not a tyrant named Nero. Not an ambitious king like Caesar. Not a military nation like Rome. No, God says you want a picture of someone worthy of honor and recognition? It's someone who's willing to give up their honor and recognition, their power and privilege in the service of others. Nothing wrong with having power. Can't escape the fact that some of us have privilege. What this does for us is it redefines how we look at those things. You want to know what makes someone worthy of honor? When they take the power and privilege that they're given and they, they wield it in the service of others. They empty themselves of it so they can serve others. One who's worthy of honor, it's a crucified Messiah who gives it all away for the good of the world and for those he loves. You see, God has no problem with us seeking honor as long as it's on the Jesus road of humility, where we consider others more significant than ourselves. Look to their interests before our own, in addition to our own. So in verse 9, is the point in the poem where it transitions from the humble incarnation of Jesus to the glorious exaltation of Jesus. Now, bear with me for a moment, but I do want to show you something kind of mind-blowing about what's being described here in in verse 9 through 11. I want you to see something mind-blowing from this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. Now, in, in, in the book of Isaiah, the, 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 there's a prophet, the prophet uh, named, you guessed it, Isaiah, right? He's speaking on behalf of God to God's people. And in chapter 45, God is through Isaiah reminding them that he, the God of Israel, the one who redeemed them, is worthy of, is the only one who's worthy of the title Lord. Right? There's all kinds of debates going on at the time on like which nation's God, which religion's God is like the one true God, right? And, 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 and God's reminding them, look, I, I'm the God who is. I'm Yahweh, the great I am. I'm the one who, who delivered you. There's only one Lord, one God who is worthy of honor and praise. The one true God. And I want you to read what it says here in Isaiah 45 about this God. He says, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Uh, He's speaking of the others, of the pagans in the area. He says, verse 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who, Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is no God besides me, none besides me. Turn to me and and be saved. The only place we have for hope of salvation is in this God. All the ends of the earth, he says, For I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall be Now, this Old Testament passage shows us that the Lord, the one before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance, is, is, is the only one worthy of praise. This God, the God who delivered these people, the God who promised through them will come a Messiah to save the world. That God, Their covenant, God, is the only one to whom every knee shall bow and whom every tongue will confess. Now, flip back forward to what Philippians 2 says about Jesus at the end of of our our poem. It says, verse 9, Therefore, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, therefore, God, has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name. What name is above every name? The Lord. The name of the Lord so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mind-blowing. Part of this poem, when they get to this part, the people reading this, knowing that history, this is mind-blowing. They'd be going bananas at this point. Paul's point is that Jesus, the crucified one, is the Lord from Isaiah. The Lord from the Mosaic covenant, from the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. He's the Lord over all, the creator, the one true God, rescuer, redeemer, savior of all. The humble servant Jesus who completely obeyed to the point of death on a cross is the one creator savior who also deserves our complete obedience. Don't miss that. The humble servant who completely obeyed to the point that he died in shame on a cross is the same God who deserves our complete obedience. The Lord, the great I am, the man that we know as Jesus is none other than the Lord God Himself. He's so much more than just a nativity baby in a barn. He's so much more than just a good moral teacher. He's so much more than just a worthy example of of goodness and niceness. He's so much more than your homeboy or your spiritual guru. He is the Lord our God the one who will make every knee bow in heaven and on earth, the king who exchanged his throne for a cross. I want you to sit on that. I want you to sit on that. Jesus is the Lord. Our God. Can you imagine singing this hymn, reciting this poem in Philippians 2, 5, or 6 through 11 in church, like in the first century? I mean, people out there in, 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 in the streets, in, in Rome, they were singing Caesar's Lord or like Nero is Lord. Paul's in prison for saying Jesus Christ is Lord. And he reminds this church of the poem, of the song that they're familiar with. He reminds them that they need to proclaim the same. They need to sing the same about our humble servant Savior, Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a poem in Philippians 2 about the beauty of Jesus' humility. I hope you see Paul's point that Jesus is the most humble man to ever live. I want you to stand and behold the unfathomable glory of Jesus in the gospel in this text. I want you to see that this poem, though, is also about our humility. Remember, Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Consider others more significant to yourselves. Don't just look to your own interests, but the interests of others. Have that mind. Have this mind. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Who? And then we have the poem. He is the one who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, Paul invites us to emulate the humble service of Jesus with this poem, with the relationships that we have. How do you have the mind of Christ in humility? First you've got to be in Christ, and then you've got to follow his example. How do children learn? They copy their parents. There's some words my daughter uses that I wish she didn't. <laughs> she unfortunately learned from me. Kids love to copy their parents. You know what it means to be a Christian? Christian literally means mini-Christ. Someone who's in Christ is like a mini-Christ. Jesus is our pattern to follow. We're to walk in his ways. Remember, there's no such thing as abstract doctrine or theology. Paul's saying in the same way. That like study the who Jesus is and what he's done. And in the same way, in the same way that Jesus subverted his position of glory and sought an opportunity to serve, let's have that same mind towards others. It's about real life, it's about our relationships. That's why Paul inserts this poem here: is to say, look to Jesus, marvel at his humility, and also see a model for your life of what it looks like to set aside your power, your Privilege your platform to turn your attention from these things and instead of grasping for self-glory and saying, mine to hoard, in humility you look to others and you say, you're mine to serve. You're mine to serve. So let's have this mind, the mind of Christ, marvel at His humility and model your relationships after His, looking not to your own interest, but the interests of others. Amen.